Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By having any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Scarrow is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. I really appreciate you coming back and making us a part of your golf content again this week. It's Memorial Week, and you guys know what a huge fan I am of Jack Nicholas. Never been up to Columbus to attend the tournament. It is one of the things on my bucket list, not only because it's Jack's tournament and the course is reminiscent of Augusta National, though those are two big reasons, of course, but also the infamous milkshakes. And you guys should know I'm a huge milkshake fan. And as you heard Damon Hack mention on the show when he joined me last week, the Buckeye milkshake is legendary. So I got to get up there one day while Jack is still with us to experience the golf tournament and experience those milkshakes. Okay, on to tonight's show, and I've got a great trio in store for you. First up is going to be 1987 U.S. Amateur Champion and a five-time winner on the PGA Tour, Billy Mayfair. I had the privilege of spending some time with Billy and his lovely wife, Tammy, a couple of weeks ago at TPC Sugarloaf for the Champions Tour event here in town, and a better hour I have not had this year. Those two are just absolutely wonderful individuals. I'm a huge fan of both of them. So really looking forward to catching up with Billy tonight. He'll be followed by the director of golf up at Alpine Country Club in New Jersey, my long-lost cousin, John Mascari. John makes every segment he joins of the show so much fun. So looking forward to having him back as part of the show tonight. And then we're going to round it out with our director of instruction, Tom Patrick. He goes from the leadoff spot to number three in the order tonight. But always a pleasure having Tom as part of the show. So looking forward to having him a little bit later on in the hour. So we're going to have a lot of fun tonight here on the show. And as always, I want to thank all of you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. I want to start out tonight by reminding you about our friends at the Macklemore, which is a private resort located just south of Chattanooga, high atop Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the United States by Golf Digest. The 18th hole, as a matter of fact, is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Outpost, is now under construction, which will open summer of 2024. The Outpost is another Bill Berg and Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both the course and the hotel have incredible views into historic Macklemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. you got to see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at Macklemore. 
Go online to MacLemore.com to book your stay and play package today. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. Okay, now back with me and next on the T is Champions Tour Pro, Billy Mayfair. Let me remind you about Billy's background. He's from Phoenix, Arizona. By age 15, he'd become such a great junior player that Boys Life magazine featured him on the cover. He played his college golf at Arizona State, where from 1986-87, his scoring average of 70.59 is still among the school's best in history. He won the 1986 U.S. Amateur Public Links Tournament. In 87, he won the U.S. Amateur by beating Eric Redmond 4-3 and three at the Jupiter Hills Golf Club. And he won back-to-back Pacific Coast Amateur Championships in 87 and 88. Also in 87, he won the Haskins Award for being the nation's best collegiate golfer. And he was a member of the U.S. Walker team that year. Billy turned pro in 1988, won five times on the PGA Tour. First one coming at the 1993 Greater Milwaukee Open. Then twice in 1995 at the Western Open and at the Tour Championship, which was played that year at Southern Hills. He won twice again in 1998 at the Nissan Open when he became the only player to ever defeat Tiger Woods in a playoff. He won again later that year at the Buick Open. Billy has finished second 19 times between the regular tour and the Champions Tour. He's had 91 top 10s and 233 top 25s. Today, the Arizona Golf Association presents the Billy Mayfair Trophy to the local player with the lowest weighted scoring average. And I'm very excited to say he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Billy, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, thank you for having me. It uh, always makes me feel good. It always gives me a little uh, boost of confidence when I hear all that stuff. That's that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Billy, I, I got to ask you, I'm, I'm sure you've played in millions of pro-ams. There was one held annually not attached to a PGA Tour event that I was reading about. It was called the Rockford Pro-Am, where tour players and celebrities would get together and play in it. And you actually won that event back in July of 2008. It was held at Forest Hills Country Club. You shoot 68 to win it with a late charge. Do you remember playing in that event? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was one of the highlights of the, of the whole summer. We uh, we usually played the Western Open the week before, and then we drove up from Chicago up to uh, Rockford. And, you know, Rockford was a wonderful place. The, the the guys who ran the tournament really tried hard. They got a good field in there. Uh, the whole town showed up. It was kind of like a Memorial Day, uh, June, uh, July 4th kind of, you know, celebration. Everybody came out and had, you know, sat on their uh, chairs and all that. And, you know, the whole town showed up. And it was just always nice to go back. And I made a lot of friends there in Rockford and, and, and friends that I still stay in touch with today. So it was a really a special, special place. 
And Billy, I know you've talked about this hundreds of times. Like I mentioned in your intro, the only player to ever beat Tiger Woods in a playoff. You did it at the 98 Nissan Open. You actually had to birdie the final hole just to time and force that playoff. Talk mm-hmm. about knowing what you needed, that you needed to make a birdie just to get into a playoff. And that playoff is with Tiger Woods, who had never lost in one of those. You pull that off and then you get through and you win that win that event. And you're like, I say, the only guy to ever beat him in a playoff. What was that like for you over those last few holes? Well, it was, you know, at, at, we were both very young. We were much younger at the time, especially Tiger. And, and Tiger wasn't quite, you know, what Tiger is today on, obviously. But uh, we all knew that he was a wrecking force. And it's it's hard to believe when we sit here that it was 25 years ago. Um, and I still think I have people come up to me, you know, today and, and talk to me about it. So I'm something that I'm very proud of and very honored, uh, about, but you know, it was, it was, it was a time it was, I was playing really good, uh, on the West coast. I had finished top 10 in, in, in Tucson the week before, and it was an odd year that we weren't playing, uh, Riviera, which I've not had very good luck on. We played a golf course called Valencia country club and, you know, kind of went over i was playing good and it was the last tournament on the west coast and, and thought we would we'd go there and see what we can do and boy you know i played really good for three days i had a three-shot lead going into 18 and i was 18 holes left and uh this guy named tiger woods who we all knew about you know made his charge on sunday and uh i knew i knew he had made birdie on 18 and, and the last hole was a par five and i knew i needed to make four to, to tie him i had a real good drive got it down there and was fortunate enough to hit a good three with just in the front bunker and it was funny. I, when I was walking from the range over to the first tee on Sunday, I, I looked to see where that pin was. And I said to myself, you know, you hit it in that front bunker. You can make that, or you can get that up and down. That's the place to do it. And, uh, on Sunday I hit it in that bunker and got it up and down to get in the playoff. And, you know, the, the playoff was in, it was one of those, everyone thought, well, you know, it's a par five tigers, this the par five and all this stuff. And, um, um, I hit my drive right down the fairway. I didn't hit it as far as I did the first one, but uh, Tiger hit his off to the right, and I, so I knew it was going to be kind of an even match then. And, and laid up, had, had a perfect uh, 88 yards with a sandwich, and, and hit it in there about oh, about six feet below the hole. And, and uh, Tiger missed a green right and chipped it by the hole, and you know tried to try to slow play me a little bit there over his putt for a while and all that. But uh, fortunately, he missed, and then uh, I knew exactly what the six footer did. I knew I had to hit it inside right, hit it firm, and, and I did, and it went in. And uh, it, what, what a relief, just just not to beat Tiger Woods, but just to win a PGA Tour event. It's not something you get to do every day. Is it true now that that's a question in Trivial Pursuit? Who is the only player to ever beat Tiger in a playoff? Uh, yes, it is. It sure is. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm in Trivial Pursuit. And, I, and, and, you know, it's something I'm real, I'm real very proud of. Uh, Tiger and I have been good friends. Uh, you know, he went to Stanford. I went to Arizona State. So we have the, the Pac-12 kind of connection there. but. You know, my wife, Tammy, and I were on the tour one day and Tiger sat down to eat breakfast and said, can I join you guys? And I said, oh, yeah, sure, Tiger. And he goes, you know, I'm the only one. You're the only one I can't intimidate out here. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, he he's always been a, a good friend. Uh, he's always been very nice to me. I, you know, all the pressures and demands that are him are just incredible. But, you know, I sure hope he, his health is good. I hope he, when he turns 50, he can come out here and play with us a little bit. Maybe, I think he'd have a great time seeing everyone. Everyone would love to see him. And you know, sure would help our tour. That's for sure. We could have Tiger Woods playing out here. Billy, you mentioned your wife, Tammy. And I think one of the best hours or so of this year for me was getting to spend some time with you and her on the range at TPC Sugarloaf. You played really well that week at the Mitsubishi Electric Classic on a very difficult golf course. But talk about playing in that tournament. Well, I, I, you know, it was funny. I've, I've never 
I, I've played there a lot. I played when the Atlanta Open was there. Uh, we we kind of switched one of the nine holes. One of the nine holes that we normally play wasn't open. They were redoing one of the holes, so it was the other other uh, a, a different nine. But you know, I've always never really played really well there at Sugarloaf. It should be a good golf course for me. It's a long, high hitters golf course. For some reason, I just never really played all that well there, and and uh, you know, started making some putts on Friday, and 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 just kind of kept it going, and and. Uh, you know, I birdied the last toe on Sunday to, to finish tied for eighth. So it was it was a good week, and uh, it was it had been a long, long time. It had been just under a year since I had my last top ten. So um, it was a great feeling to have, and gave me a lot of confidence going over to the next week into the regions. Billy, speaking of tough golf courses, you're coming off the Senior PGA Championship. I know that tournament didn't go the way you had hoped, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the new PGA headquarters there in Frisco, Texas. Talk about the facility and the new championship course they have. Well, they did an, an, an awesome job there. It's, it, you know, it's, it covers a lot of land. There's a lot of room there. The, uh, the, the head office for the PJ of America is a, a wonderful building. Um, the, the, you know, the practice facilities, they got it for people. They've got a huge putting green practice area. You name it, they've got it there. Uh, the golf course, I think, is a, a very good golf course. I know there's been a lot of talk about it and all that. And, and you know, the week didn't go quite the way I wanted to. So, you know, it's always hard to say a lot of good things when you haven't played very well there, but it wasn't because of the golf course. And I think that they did a great job in building a course that the wind is always going to blow there. And, and, and it, the golf course was set up to help that. But, you know, if I had any, anything to say negative about it was I just didn't feel the golf course was quite ready yet. Uh, it had not been open even a year. And I think there was just some spots in the course that, that just needed to mature a little bit more. They've got three years now before the PGA championships there. And I think it'll be great in three years, but you know what? They built a golf course out there where there's a lot of length, um, you know, to grow into it. They got great chances for Ryder cups, uh, there, uh, but just an outstanding facility. Unfortunately, just the week didn't go great, great for me. Billy, there's obviously a lot of talk about the model local rule to roll the golf ball back for elite players like you and players on all the tours, plus college players and even high-level amateurs. Want to get your thoughts? Is this something the game needs? Well, I think this is. I think this is something that's going to have to be done at, at some point in time. I mean, I think someone said that you know, over the past ten years, the golf ball has gone somewhere around six to seven yards further every year. I mean, uh, since then, in the last ten years. And, you know, I, I saw an interview with Jack Nicholas today at the Memorial and, you know, he's been crying to get the golf ball to come down for the last 20 years. So, uh, and even, he even even said Bobby Jones a hundred years ago, was worried about the golf ball becoming too, uh, too far. Uh, I'd like to see it modified just because I think we'd love, it'd be great to go back and play some of the older golf courses that have come become obsolete because the golf ball goes so far. But, uh, you know, I, I just don't know how it can happen or, or, or how it's going to happen. I just, I, I think that uh, between the golf ball, uh, you can modify that, but you still got these drivers. You still got these clubs that are just built so high tech that it may not make that big of a difference. So I, I don't know how to solve the problem. Uh, I don't, I, I, I just, you're just going to kind of have to do some testing and, and, and see what the best facility is. But um, I, I do believe they're going to have to do something here pretty soon. Did Oak Hill show us what we really need to do, what we need to be focusing on, you know, making the fairways more narrow, growing up the rough, doing things of that nature? Can we can we handle the distance problem by doing different things on the golf course? 
Uh, I think so. I, I think that to me right now would be a better try to do a more of a better change in trying to change the golf ball. What's what's sad about the, the, what's hard for me with the golf ball is, is that, you know, one of the great things about golf is that I can go out and play with a tie list or, or, a, or any type of golf ball. And, and you can too. And we can play the same golf clubs and the same golf ball and the same golf course, for the same tees. And there's no other sport like that. You can't go and shoot baskets like the NBA players or throw a football down the field like Tom Brady could and all that. And that's what makes golf so special. So by changing the golf ball and saying that tour pros have to play this one and amateurs don't, I, I, I really I think that's going to hurt the game in the long run more than, than help it uh, because it's just such a special thing that everybody can play who plays golf can play no matter what your level is, can play the same thing the pros do. And that's, and that's what the guys want to do. And I don't blame them for that. Billy, during our time uh, at Sugarloaf, when I got to spend the time with you and Tammy, you have so many great ideas, so many great stories and so many great experiences from all your years playing the game. If you were commissioner for a day, is there something that you would like to see changed in the game that you would make? Oh, Chris, what a great, great question that is. if I was the commissioner for a day, I mean, I know that I have 50% of the guys on tour mad at me and the other 50% happy with me. And that's just, that's just it. And, and the commissioners need to understand that, you know, you're not going to make everybody happy all the time and, and, and you just got to do what's best for, for, for the game of golf and everything. But, you know, I, I just, I, I'd like to see the development of younger players uh, get even stronger um, with, with, with junior programs, with uh, amateur golf, college golf and with uh, amateur you know uh you know golf out there just i i just don't feel that the level of competition uh is growing at the rate it should and i think everyone's so worried about prize money and the length of all these golf courses uh let's let's concentrate on the on the young talent that we have out there and try to get them out here to keep the game going as good as it is billy when i look back at your early days i read that jerry pate was your idol and you used to volunteer at the Phoenix open so you could work with his group. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah. I, I stood out in the rain a few times and then, and then always carry Jerry Pate sign at the, uh, at the uh, Phoenix open and, and enjoyed it every year. Cause he, 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 and, and there's, it's, there's a great example. He played the orange golf ball. He played the orange right. Wilson golf ball and so did I. And so it was always fun that I could go out and watch him play. And then I could go home and play the same golf clubs and the same golf ball that he did. So, but yes, he was he was my idol growing up. Yes, you turned pro in 1988, and suddenly you're out there playing in fields with Jerry Pate. Did you ever get paired with him? Yeah, yeah, a few times. His, it was funny. His wife recognized me a few times, and uh, Jerry and I had played. We actually played a few actually Champions Tour events too uh, together to to really make us feel old and all that stuff. But uh, you know, it was it was it's a dream come true. You go out there and you caddy for someone, I mean, carry the sign for someone. And then, you know, you're out there playing them. And I'm sure that someone out there who carried the sign for me is going to be out here kicking my butt too someday. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's just what makes golf great. And just the development of it. What, what was it like though, for you, the first time you heard that you were going to get paired with Jerry Pate? I mean, if, if I were a guy and Jack Nicholas is my hero and, if I were a tour player and found out I'm about to play with Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer, whoever your hero was, boy, that'd be tough to sleep the night before. I'd be nervous the whole next morning. What was it like for you knowing you're about to tee it up with him? Well, it was about the same. I mean, it was nerve wracking, but I, you know, I just, I didn't want to go out and, you know, 
mess up or, or, or hit a bad shot or, or anything like that. And, uh, you know, Jerry was super, he, he knew this, he kind of knew the scenario and, and uh, he put his arm around me and, and, you know, said, Hey, let's go have some fun, dude. And, and uh, it was, it was always enjoyable to play with. Billy, you got on tour by finishing 21st at Q school in 1988, which I believe was held that year at PGA West. And so many of your peers have talked on this show about Q school being the hardest and most stressful tournament that they ever played in. Was it that way for you? Uh, it, it, it was. I mean, you have to remember when we went to tour school, there was no corn ferry tour. Um, there was no secondary tour. If you did not get your tour card, uh, more than likely you were going to go to Asia or somewhere uh, across the, the world in order to play golf until the next tour school came. Uh, exemptions. Uh, they didn't give young players exemptions like they do now. These, these, you know, they, they, a lot of these tournaments love to give these kids right out of college, all these exemptions. And that just wasn't done when I came out. Uh, even with my record after winning the public links and winning the U S amateur and playing good in the NCAAs, you know, um, I wasn't, I wasn't given a whole bunch of exemptions into PGA tour events. So, you know, it was kind of a different scenario, but you know, you got your whole life. I mean, you got your whole, whole year, you know, playing on that one week. If if you, if you play well and you get your card, you're set for the year. If you're not, you got to go all over the world. So it, it definitely put a lot of pressure on. And Billy, going back to your college days at Arizona State, another guest that's been on this show, Tom Stankowski, Paul's brother, was oh, wow. one of your teammates. Yep. What do you remember about playing al- alongside Tommy? Oh, Stanko and I, uh, we, we, we had a lot of good stories. We were both recruited uh, at Arizona State the same years. and We actually talked a few nights before we signed, and I said, are you going to go? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, am I going to go? And we, you know, and we, just, we both confirmed with each other that we were going to go to Arizona State because we wanted to play together. And we thought we had a good chance of, of making the team a lot better. But uh, uh, Tom, Tom and I are, 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 are very good friends. We see each other. We stay in touch. I obviously teach in touch with him with through Paul. But, um, you know, just it's like I told my son a while back when he went to college. I said, when you meet these kids you meet in college, or be your lifetime friend. And that's what Tom is. He's just a lifetime friend of mine. And I always wish him the best. And uh, we had a lot, a lot of fun in college. Billy, when you won the 1994 Greater Milwaukee Open, you did so by sinking a 20-foot chip shot to beat another great friend of the show, Mark Kalkovecki, on the fourth playoff hole. Talk about that week and your chip in to win it. <laughs> um, it you know, obviously, I, I had been on tour. It was my second year on tour, it was, and, and, and I had been close a few times uh, to winning. Um, and I, and you know, I was really trying to get that monkey off my back and, and to win and, and was playing really good at Milwaukee. I think I had the lead going into Sunday and, and, uh, had the lead and made it, made a few bogeys coming in and let Mark and, and Ted Schultz back in, into the tournament. And, and, uh, Ted got eliminated on the, on the first playoff hole, but, uh, we went three holes, Mark and I went three holes and, and, uh, on the third playoff hole, you know, I, he hit it in there real good shot it was uphill. It was about a six iron into the grade and, he hit a real good shot in there about 15 feet. And I kind of went for the pin and short-sided myself on the left side. And, you know, I just, I was hoping just to get to another hole. I just wanted to get to another hole and, and uh, hit a little chip shot, bumped and run and hit the flag and went in. And, and uh, um, you know, to my surprise, I was ready to go to the next hole. Mark missed his and, and we got our first win. And, you know, Mark and I have been really close friends ever since then. And, and uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a lifetime friend for me too. Billy, the following year in 95 was a big season for you. You won twice. You finished second three times, six top tens, 
He went from being ranked 113th after the 1994 season to number two in 1995, and he had one of the greatest one-season earnings turnarounds in tour history. I got to ask you, what what was the difference? What clicked in 95? Well, I, I, I think a lot of things. I mean, I think the biggest thing that clicked was I, 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 I started getting to know the golf courses. It, it was it was my sixth year on the tour. I knew where to travel. I knew where to stay. I knew which courses I liked, which ones I didn't. Um, but it was it was also, I mean, I had been close uh, to playing good and, and to playing good week after but to one week at a time. But I really wanted to put a good year together. And I really focused that year on, on, on a lot of more of my putting, my chipping. And, uh, and, you know, it started paying off. I, I, I got some confidence and, and, and had some good top 10 finishes. And, and then all of a sudden was in position to win. So, you know, if I say it, I had to say I had to do anything different. It was just, you know, I, I think the whole year just started off good. I got some confidence by making some putts and, you know, just continued with it all year. You won the tour championship in 1995. That year it was held at Southern Hills. You shot even par for the week and won by three. It was the first time since 1981 that no one broke par for the week. Talk about surviving Southern Hills and getting that big win. Well, that was a huge win. It was it was it was in October because it was right before a Halloween. And the the thing that was funny was that we played the PGA Championship there. Um, I think it was in August the year before. And you know August in in Tulsa and. Uh, Late October in Tulsa, Oklahoma are two different things. And all I remember is getting there to, and, and uh, seeing the wind blow and, and the leaves going across the fairway. And I said, this is going to be a completely different golf course than what we had here for the PGA Championship, which was kind of soft. And, you know, it was it was hot and, and the greens were slow and, 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 and held very well. Um, I think everyone thought, you know, it was going to take a lot under to win there. And, and uh, you know, the golf course just played really hard. And I like playing hard golf courses in, in, in some, in some tricky wind. And, and, uh, uh, on Saturday, you know, the last nine holes on Saturday, I think I was four under and I made my move right there. And, and it just kind of, you know, was just good enough to hold on for the whole week. Billy, as you look ahead to the rest of this year on the champions tour, you've got the U S senior open at century world in Wisconsin. It's a top 100 public golf course. Have you ever played there before? Yes, I have. I was actually, I played a, a junior when I was 15 years old there. Wow. And, uh, it was in immaculate shape and I, and I missed one of the fairways and walked on some of the flowers and I got in trouble for walking on the flowers. Um, <laughs> so I, I do know that they, I, they, it's a public place and it's in, in immaculate shape and I know that they're getting it ready for the open and, and um, you know, it'll be very interesting to have a, a U.S. senior open up in, in, in Wisconsin. So uh, we'll see what the weather brings us, but uh any U.S. Opens, uh, always a, a huge thrill and a lot of excitement. And then as we look out a little bit further, the Senior Open Championship at the end of July is going to be held at Royal Portcaw, a, a, a historic course that goes all the way back to 1891. Hasn't held a bunch of major championships outside of the British Amateur, but they have had a couple of Senior Open Championships there before. Both, yes. oh, by the way, won by Bernhard Langer. Bernhard Langer, yep. Uh, yeah, are you going over? Are you going to play in the tournament? Oh yeah, we're going over. My wife, my love, my wife loves going over there. We, we go over there a few days early and and uh, play a little bit of golf over there and and uh, kind of get you know acclimated to the time and all that. But we did play there. I think it was four years ago when when Bernhard won there last time. And, and uh, all I remember is the wind really blows here very hard, and you know it can be chilly and cold. So it's definitely British Open weather, and and uh, I enjoy that. I enjoy trying to hit the ball low and, and keep it low, and and and, and uh, 
and I've and I played pretty well that week. I think we finished uh, top twenty, and and uh, it'll be fun to go back. Billy, we talked about this a little bit ago, but you've led the tour in sand saves. That's the weakest part of my game. Were you great at, out of the sand because of having played so much desert golf? Or did someone give you some tips early on that helped you out? Well, I, I've always been very comfortable in, in bunkers. I, I, I don't want to say I aim for them, but when I hit them in the bunker, I, I'm, I'm immediately thinking about either trying to hole it or, 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 or getting it up and down you know, immediately. Uh, it's just one of those places that I feel very comfortable. My first instructor, Arch Watkins, gave me some great lessons in the bunker, and, and I've still used them today. And uh, I've always I've been very good in, 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 in sand saves. Uh, I think I won that category three or four times on the big tour. Um, I, I just think it's just one of those places where, you know, I, I get in the bunker and I feel very comfortable. And, and I'm trying to make that shot every time I get in there. And, and, and uh, that's why I think my stats have always been so good. Billy, we've talked about your wife, Tammy, a little bit. You mentioned her a couple of times. She's on the bag for you now. That's something you also have in common with Mark Kalkovecki, whose wife, Brenda, caddies for him. Tammy and Brenda are both awesome individuals. What's it like getting to have her out on the course with you? Well, it's 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 a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of a lot of people look at me kind of funny and having your wife out there. Isn't that too much? You know, Tammy, Tammy's grown up in, in uh, golf her whole life. Family was in golf. She. She worked golf. She played golf. She played uh, at ASU. And I have to mention, she did win two NCAAs t- uh, championships while she was at ASU because she'll never let me live that down. But, uh, <laughs> you know, she's been around golf and been out there and, and been on the tour her whole life. So this is not something that's new. Uh, we help each other out a lot. I think she learns a lot from me and I learn a lot from her. And uh, we, we have a very, we have a great, you know, we have a wonderful marriage and, and, and all that. But I think our, 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 our personalities fit each other very good and she knows when to leave me alone and when to try to get in my face out there in the golf course. And I think we just match up very well out there. And, it, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, this is the champions tour. It's supposed to be fun out there and uh, having your wife out there to share that with you is, is, is definitely a thrill. Billy, we've talked before on this show about your being diagnosed with autism later in life. You set up a wonderful foundation to help athletes with spectrum related disorders and, you actually got an email today from a, a seventh grader. I want you to talk about both your foundation and the email you got earlier. Well, thank you. I, yeah, it's it's something my wife and I have been trying to get. I was I was diagnosed two years ago with uh, with uh, very high functioning autism, and I decided to go public with it. And uh, once I learned more about it, it, it made a lot more sense to me, and, and that's why I wanted to go public to to let people be aware of it, so that they will go get tested, so that they can get better and have uh, richer, healthier, happier lives. And one of the things that my, my wife and I noticed was how there was no help out there for the siblings, for, for the husbands, for the wives, for the, for the parents, for the other children in the family and all that. And we've really kind of taken it up as our mission to try to help uh, families with children or, or people who have autism, to give them support to try to teach them things, to try to, you know, give them someone to scream at, because I know that they're most of the time are going out of their minds and, and all that stuff. So it's just sad that there's not a lot of help out there for the siblings. Uh, but we're trying to change that. And it's a very slow process, but uh, it's something that that means very dear to me and to Tammy, and, and we will get this done. Uh, and when you get a note like you did today from, from a young golfer in, in North Carolina who 
I'm his favorite golfer out here because I have autism. Uh, you know, you're doing something right. And uh, there's good days and there's bad days, just like there is on the golf course. And uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it, it kind of chokes you up a little bit when someone writes you something like that, because you know that you've, you've affected someone's life or changed their life in just a little bit away. And and it's just a wonderful thing. Billy, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they get involved with your foundation, find out more information about it, and also follow you on social media? Yeah, basically for for the foundation, for me to go on uh, billymayford.org. And that will tell you about myself, where I'm at, what I'm doing, and uh, more about our foundation and, and, and how things are set up. Um, like I said, it's, it's still kind of, we're in the process, still trying to get it all together. It's a slow, meticulous process. We want to make sure we do everything the right way. And, and so that we can get things done and help to, but, uh, that's, that's the best way to get on there. And, and, uh, uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Billy, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. And again, thank you for the time you spent with me on the driving range, you and, and your wonderful wife, Tammy. Uh, like I say, and I mean this sincerely, one of the best hours or however long it was uh, of the year so far, getting to know both of you a little bit better and and chat and, and learn about your lives and the things that you guys have done and accomplished. Uh, you're one of my favorite golfers now. And <laughs> well, I, I can't thank you enough. Well, Chris, thank you. You guys, you do a great sh- uh, show here and, and you talk to a lot of great players and I know a lot of good golfers are listening and, and, and all that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do. I, I can only imagine how hard some of your shows are and, and and all that, but we just kind of want to pat you on the back too, and tell you good job too, and then tell you how much we enjoy doing it. I appreciate that very much, Billy. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and Tammy. I, I hope I uh, get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. That sounds good, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you, Billy. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. That is the great Billy Mayfair, folks, and billymayfair.org is his foundation, and that B Mayfair Golf is how you can follow him on Twitter. But uh, he's just a wonderful, wonderful man. And his wife, Tammy, is equally as great. And uh, I mean it sincerely. The the hour or whatever amount of time it was that we spent chatting on the driving range at TPC Sugarloaf is truly one of the best times that I've had in a very long time. They're both wonderful people. They've got great stories. Uh, we laughed a lot and I learned a lot uh, about his career and, and other things going that go on. Uh, on the Champions Tour and the PGA Tour. And uh, this foundation that Billy has set up uh, to help others uh, dealing with autism and learning about it and getting tested and all that is is just tremendous. Giving back the way that, that he and his wife, Tammy, do uh, is a credit to both of them and a credit to the game of golf. And uh, like I say, for him to get an email from a seventh grader proclaiming a seventh grader now, right? This isn't somebody like me that's 58 years old that's watched Billy from the time he's been in college to the PGA Tour to the championship. This is a young man that has reached out to Billy because of what Billy has gone through and what this young man is going through. And for them to to connect, if you will, uh, speaks volumes again about how wonderful a man Billy Mayfair is. I sincerely hope we get to have Billy back on the show again a little bit later on in this season. Okay, coming up next is my long-lost cousin, John Mascari. Before I get to John, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year. And I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, 
I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a, a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX Full Face Wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arcos and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arcos Caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick-dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. All right, now back in making his fifth appearance with me here on Next on the T is my long-lost cousin, John Mascari. Let me remind you about John's background. He attended Ryder University in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, and graduated with his bachelor's degree in political science and government. John is a PGA professional. He's worked at some of the best courses in and around the New York and New Jersey area. He is now the director of golf at Alpine Country Club in Alpine, New Jersey. He's also a member of Callaway's master staff. John has been named a top 50 master teacher by U.S. Kids Golf. He also co-hosts his own show called On the Tee on ESPN Radio up in New York. And it's great having him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Cuz, how are you? Good, man. I just want to go back on mute and listen to Billy Mayfair talk about <laughs> trying to hold out every bunker shot he has. Are you kidding me? <laughs> He's fantastic, isn't he? I'm just trying to keep it on the green. Here's, you know, right? I'm going to hold that one. Man. Yeah, you're I'm hoping great. to keep it on the green. I'm hoping not to hit it, skull it in the woods. That's exactly. what I'm trying not to do. Exactly, exactly. Nice John, to be I, back with you. Yep, for sure. I appreciate you. I want to start our time by getting your thoughts on Michael Block. The guy comes out of nowhere, essentially, to carry the torch for his fellow 29,000 PGA professionals. And not only does he easily become the low PGA professional at the PGA Championship, he finished tied for 15th and qualifies to come back and play in the event next year. How much did did uh, Michael elevate the other uh, PGA professionals around the country over those four days? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, talk about a great uh, representation of our profession. And Mike, uh, you know, in our in our world, always known as being a great player, but never to this extent. And, you know, you had Brooks Kepka winning, which is a huge story on its own. And here's Mike almost overshadowing Brooks's win with his heroics for four days capped off by a slam dunk hole in one. And, you know, you, you already wrote the fairy book, fairy tale story and to knock in a hole in one and his reaction was just so wholesome and, and pure that it just showed what 
the game of golf is to us and how lucky we are to play for a living. And we couldn't have a, a better ambassador for our profession than Mike. And he, he surely showed that with his graciousness and his professionalism throughout the week. And John, you're on the board of directors of your section up there. Talk about what what is the day-to-day life like of a PGA profession? Oh, boy. Um, some might call us the ringmaster, Chris. Um, some days we're the therapist. Some days we're the slow play police. Uh, but most of the time we're, I guess, we're the host or the hostess of golf. You know, I want to be a welcoming face when my members arrive at Alpine. I try to make sure I come in contact with as many people as I can whether it's on the range or in the shop or on the golf course. Um, try to block some time for emails. We have meetings, obviously, throughout the day with food and beverage and with other aspects and departments. Uh, try to keep in communication and chat with my staff, you know, talk about events that are coming up. But other than that, you sprinkle in a, a little time on the range, maybe five or ten minutes to hit some shots, and before you know it, it's dark. So, you know, we wear many hats as a PGA professional, but they're all good hats. And we're all uh, qualified to do so, but um, the role could change any day. You know, you go from weatherman to <laughs> golf <laughs> therapist to all sorts of stuff. But that's one of the great things about it is that people come to us for so many things. They come to us to help them with their game. They come to us to help them put together a golf outing for a charity. The rules of golf. The hey, we want to plan a, a party for our son around golf, and we're kind of involved in it all and that's really what makes our profession so important at all these clubs and with the uptick of golf that we've seen across the country in the past few years it it only makes it better for us john one of the other things that you guys are so good at is growing the game helping us to grow the game as a a member of the board of directors in your section and the guy who works with so many pga professionals around the country Talk about the things that you guys are doing to grow this game. I mean, the easy answer is to like engage kids and the young people. That's really low hanging fruit. But we tend to look at it a little bit differently, especially in New Jersey. Um, You know, I like to think of growing the game as a bit more diverse. That includes adults of all backgrounds, especially females, those who live in areas that golf is not an easy option, Chris. Um. For years, we had a worldwide celebrity who made golf cool. You know, he put the golf industry on his back. He brought young athletes who would never maybe have played golf to golf. You know, they might have been basketball or football players, but they they turned to golf because he made it cool. And with him, quote unquote, air quotes here out of the picture, those are some big Nikes to fill. You know what I mean? So. Sure, the PGA professional will carry a big load. You know, in New Jersey, we host golf and schools programs in which we go in after school hours and bring the game to those without the means or the opportunities. Uh, We embrace our veterans. We offer them golf lessons as part of their rehabilitation through the PGA Hope program. And we also help out a lot with people with special needs. And we, we want them to enjoy the game, enjoy the competition, the inclusion but really the friendship and the fellowship that golf possesses. I may be biased. I think we do it better than anyone in, in the PGA sections in New Jersey. I mean, if you want to check out njgolffoundation.org, it'll show you all the stuff we do from L's to autism to uh, we do uh, tournaments for the Mid-Atlantic Blind Golf Association. So there's many different 
pillars that we have to support golf in our area. And I'm sure if you went to any other section, you'd see the same. So, again, kids are great. They're easy. They're fun. They like to have fun. But really, really growing the game is bringing it to the masses and and looking at all aspects of uh, the population. So let's talk about kids. And I get that that's the low-hanging fruit. But how are you trying to get more young people excited about coming out and playing the game of golf? I think you just have to make it fun, Chris. You know, it's real easy for us to tell them, make sure you play fast, make sure you know the rules. But the the way to have fun playing golf is to play well or play better. And my definition of playing well is different than Rory McIlroy's, and that's different than yours. So it's really weird that you brought this up because I played golf with my son today, and I haven't played golf with my son. He's 13, probably a year. And that goes back to, you know, trying to figure out a work-life balance with our duties as a PGA pro. And he hit some really great shots today, and he hit some really poor shots today. And he's a very recreational golfer, but I noticed his reactions to shots that maybe I thought were so-so, he was very happy with. So what might be a poor shot for you or me might be a great shot for him. And it's up to us to embrace that joy, push them to want more of that feeling, and I think that's how you keep kids interested, right? Let them celebrate the good stuff and want more of that. John, you also mentioned a moment ago helping out people without the means to play golf. And I think one of the challenges we have in the game is making it more affordable. I think there are great programs like the one you're involved with with U.S. Kids, like the First Tee, like Women's Golf Day to bring more people into the game. But it's sort of like that that Seinfeld episode. We're good at taking the reservation, but we're not great about (laughs) holding the reservation because once you're in you know daily green fees aren't cheap equipment isn't cheap joining a club isn't cheap is there something that you see that can be done to keep more people in the game once we get them started that's a that's a tough question chris i mean everything is expensive now right the world we live in is just getting more and more expensive but i think if you really have a will you can be creative you know buy some foam golf balls and practice in your backyard Put on the carpet inside, you know, I to a coffee cup. I remember as a kid chipping on my front lawn in Staten Island, New York, which was about 15 feet wide. You know, <laughs> it wasn't a big lawn, but <laughs> that was, I would go out there and chip back and forth and back and forth. And I was lucky that I had, you know, I lived in New York City where the, the golf courses are run by the city and you would get a, a discount if you were a, a resident. And I'm sure there's, Stuff like that still, like if you're a town has a golf course, you can get a discount of that. Again, if there's a will, there's a way. Used clubs, used golf balls, you know, talk to friends that are golfers. If they have anything that they're not using anymore. You don't have to only play it at pricey country clubs. You know, look at the discounts, local clubs, last minute tea times, you know, typically go on sale. Uh, we have to make people aware of those opportunities. So, the first part is pay, making people aware and giving them those options to to go play golf. But maybe they thought, you know, there's no way I can play. Just have fun doing it. Make up a game for yourself. Have fun. Talk to friends. Put costs, whatever you can do. Switching gears just a little bit. Um, you've had your fair share of celebrities come out to Alpine Country Club. Who are some of the recognizable names oh, you've had man. at the golf course? And talk about their love for the game. Yeah, listen, I'm blessed to have. Titans of industry, politicians, sports icons. Um, the vast majority have two traits. They're very nice and they're 
pretty average golfers. <laughs> so, you know, we have CC Sabathia, Ja Rule, Wayne Wade has played a bunch. Alonzo Mourning. Uh, I mean, I can keep going. Carson Daly I've played golf with. Mark Wahlberg. These are all people, if you walk by them in the street, they'd be surrounded by paparazzi, right? When you get them off their off the court, off the field, off the stage, away from the camera, they're just golfers. They're just average Joes. And I hate to use that term, but you wouldn't think, if you didn't know them from their sport, you'd probably think twice, you wouldn't think twice about being paired up with them on a Saturday morning. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what puts our profession in an interesting light as the experts in golf. Here I am using air quotes again, is that they look at us as the, the experts in golf and then with all the knowledge and, you know, we look at them like, oh my God, am I really telling Dwayne Wade how to make this 10 footer right here? <laughs> you know, he's playing in front of thousands and thousands of fans and here he is knee knocking a uh, 10 foot downhill putt. But like anything else, when you take people out of their comfort zone, they tend to show who they are. And like I said, 99.9 times they are great people. They're fun to be around and they have a passion for this game and especially athletes. They have this little bit of switch in their brain that says, if I'm going to play this sport, I'm going to play it at the highest level I can. And they grind and they grind and they play as much as they can. They want to get better. And they want to get better. They want to feed that, that cop, that the competition feeds them and it grows stronger. So it's really neat to see that. But in the end, everyone's out there to recreate, have a good time. And uh, they're just like you and I. John, you also spent some time with a good friend of this show, Keith Stewart. You guys are not only great radio show hosts, Keith is also a PGA professional. Talk about spending time with him on his show. Keith and I, we go way back, uh, Chris. We've been in New Jersey for a, for a while. Um, we talk a lot. We talk about um, ideas. We've been on the board together. We've co-chaired committees together. We are both diehard New York Ranger hockey fans. So we, a lot of our discussions are about the Rangers and how we're trying to talk each other off a ledge most of the time. But <laughs> Keith has been a great resource for me. He's been a great sounding board. Uh, he helps me with career advice. He helps me with personal stuff. And you, know, I, you don't get very, that many good friends in your life. And I'm, I'm proud to say Keith is a real good friend of mine. You know, he's someone I could call up if I needed help and he'd pick up the phone. So it's, it's fun to talk to him. It's just like when I'm on his show, it's just like we're hanging out on the couch, BSing about whatever. And it's very comfortable. And, and I have a great time doing it. So uh, I'm, I'm lucky to have Keith as a good friend. John, I got to get a couple of playing lessons from you because next week is my annual golf trip with my buddies. We're headed over to Myrtle beach to play Caledonia golf and fish club and true blue golf club. So, um, I need a little help. And, and, and there's so much sand out there. And we talked about bunker play earlier on and listen to Billy Mayfair talk about it, but let's, I need a couple of tips. Let's talk about fairway bunker shots. And, um, we saw last week that they can do you in. We saw Victor Hovland and Corey Connors both uh, have a tough time in that fairway bunker on 16. But give me a give me a, a playing lesson, a setup, ball position, that sort of thing. If we're in a fairway bunker, we don't have a huge lip in front of us. But how do we not chunk that shot or hit it thin into that face? Yeah, the first thing I look at, Chris, when I'm walking into a fairway bunker, is I really feel with my feet, right? I'm feeling that consistency of the sand. Is it soft and powdery? Is it firm? And that's going to really play a little bit into where I place the ball in my stance. I try to play it as 
most I can in the center. I want to strike ball first. And I'm always going to take a little extra club. So if I'm in between or if I'm at the edge, I'll take one more. Maybe just feel like it's a three-quarter swing or if I have to choke up a little bit on it for contact. But I want to make good contact with ball first. You know, a little different than we're hitting that splash uh, green side bunker shot where we're hitting the sand first and, and then propelling the ball outward. Ball first in the in the fairway. Get a nice firm base in there. Give it a three-quarter swing and go from there. I, you know, tend, we tend to overswing a little bit in the fairway bunkers. So take some more club, three-quarter swing, and be happy if it's anywhere around the green and try to get it up and down. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> John, I'm seeing a 30 second playing lesson on the. I'll I'll take what I can get, my friend. That's awesome. I got to get your thoughts as well because I'm seeing more and more players ditch their long irons, three, four iron, in favor of a seven wood. So for mid to high handicappers like me, is that something that is going to give us a better opportunity to hit more solid contact and hit better shots? Are you still in favor of hitting a, you know, keeping a four iron in your bag? Yeah, I, I could probably count on one hand the amount of four irons I hit on the golf course. And that's probably with uh, halfway through. Um, yeah, put put a seven wood, put hybrids in your bag. The face is bigger. There's more loft. It's going to be easier for you to hit it higher. You know, we want to hit a high trajectory when we're on the golf course. We want that ball to land on the green or land where we want it to in the fairway softly and not run through. Three, fours, even five irons, Chris, are, are, are tough to hit. You know, a lot of the loft on irons now are jacked up a little bit. So the four iron you might have in your bag is almost like a three and a half iron, which makes it even harder. So by all means, get some head covers in your bag. Leave the three and the four in your garage and uh, start hitting some more playable shots with that seven wood or that heaven wood. John, the other thing I think, you know, I'm 58 years old now. I think, you know, players from my generation, maybe even a little bit younger, there's a stigma to which tee we play. I think a lot of us, you know, feel like, ah, I, I play the blue tees or, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't want to move up to the whites. Or when you start to get older, you don't want to go from the whites to the gold and all that sort of thing because it's sort of an ego thing. How do we get over ourselves and actually start to have some fun by playing the tee that's right for us? Yeah, that's... um. <laughs> funny you brought that up chris because I, I got rid of all the color golf tees at, at alpine this year so we switched from black blue white gold and red and went to numbers so one two three four those are the tees and you know the one is the hardest the four is the closest and we want people to play the tee that fits their carry distance off the tee and i i always challenge people that you know, I'll bet you that you can't break your handicap from the tee in front of where you're playing. Mm. I said, you know what? You want to you want to bet? If you, I'll bet you twenty bucks, and if if you can do it, I'll give you sixty bucks in the golf shop. Wow. Come in and break your handicap, and it it's an aha moment for a lot of people that if you can't break your handicap from the tee you're playing from, you should move up and have more fun, hit shorter clubs into greens, hit more greens, and score better. You know, it's. Golf is hard enough, and we're making it difficult by playing the wrong tee because of our ego or because of the people we're playing with. And I'll even mess them around sometimes, and I'll put the three in between the one and the two, and so on and so forth, and just to give, give them a little bit of fun there. It's, it's been really good so far. We've seen more and more people play forward. 
more and more people embrace playing a forward team because it's not red or it's not gold or it's not called the senior tee or the ladies tee. Go up there, have a good time, and uh, shoot lower numbers. Everyone feel it. 83 feels so much better than 88. <laughs> it really does. I agree with that. And it well, takes a quarter amount of time. Right. Well, that, you know, and, and you mentioned early on about, you know, pace of play and stuff like that. I mean, isn't that something that we should be in? Everybody's talking about pace of play from the PGA Tour on down. Isn't there a way for us to figure out what key we should be playing, whether it's handicap, driving distance or whatever? But not only are we going to shoot lower scores, we're going to get done in, in, a, in a faster amount of time. And there's nothing more frustrating on a golf course. Then you're waiting on every shot. You're waiting for somebody because they thought they needed to play from the blue tees or whatever tee it is. Mm-hmm. So you got you got pace of play problems. You got frustration problems. It's just bad for the game. That's right. Let's uh, let's all have more fun and moving the tees up, playing a forward tee. I hope my superintendent's not listening, but not tucking <laughs> not tucking the pins and corners of the greens, and you know our. Our greens at Alpine were 14 this weekend. Wow. So for a good player, it's fun. But for a 25 handicap when you're putting off the green or you can't get it near the hole and you're playing hockey up there, it, it makes for a slow round. So to all the supers out there, give us a little bit of help and maybe go from a 13 to an 11 or an 11 and a half and put the pins in the middle of the green, move those tees up, and we'll see how we can get pace to play back in line. There you go. John, one more before I let you go. And like we've talked about, you're the director of golf at Alpine Country Club there in Alpine, New Jersey. For those of us who aren't familiar with the club, talk about what you have there. Wow. Um, yeah, so I'm in my sixth season at Alpine. I'm blessed with a terrific uh, staff supporting membership. We have a lot of fun events. Uh, we're right outside of New York City, so we're blessed in that manner. Um, as I said, I have a terrific staff. I have. Uh, I know a friend of yours alongside me jonathan yarwood is our director of instruction so always fun to be around him and kind of get some good nuggets for my own game and watching the members play better but um alpine is always at the top of the list for uh, best clubs in new jersey so i'm very blessed in that matter uh as you mentioned i'm also doing on the tee with anita marks on espn radio in new york city every sunday morning that's always a blast with her we have a lot of fun doing that um I actually have something fun coming up starting tomorrow, and I ha- I'm going to have to get a good night's sleep tonight because my alarm's going off at about 4.45. Oh, my. LPGA uh, Mizuho America's Open at Liberty National. Wow. Um, you know Liberty is hosting the, the Barclays. They held the President's Cup there as well, and this is the first time they're holding an LPGA event, and the LPGA is really centered in New Jersey for quite a bit. We have the KPMG uh, women's PGA Championship at Boston Sprawl. We've had the uh, Cognizant Championship at Upper Montclair. Right now, coming up is the um, Shoprite Classic down in um, Atlantic City. So, a lot of ladies are staying in New Jersey for a few weeks. But I'll be the starter on number one tomorrow. Oh my! Pronouncing all the names and mispronouncing all these names tomorrow. <laughs> so, I got a pack of uh, cough drops, pack of Ludens, some water, and wish me luck, cuz. <laughs> Indeed. Good luck tomorrow. John, how can our listeners stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you on social media? Oh, thank you. Uh, John Mascari, PGA is my handle on Twitter and Instagram. And 
There's a link to my YouTube channel. As I mentioned, ESPN every Sunday morning uh, here in New York, but also streamed everywhere on the ESPN app. And uh, that's about it. <laughs> because oh. it's always so much fun getting to spend time with you, my friend. I, I hope we get the blessing of having you back on the show again soon. You're outstanding. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, man. Appreciate it very much. John, all the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. You too, Chris. Thanks. See you, John. That is my long-lost cousin, John Mascari, and just a huge, huge talent in our game, not only from a, a radio perspective, and you can tell that how much fun he is to have as part of a show and doing his own show, but uh, all the knowledge that he brings to the game and the leadership that he brings, and something that he and I have talked about uh, you know, away from uh, the microphone and, and when we spent some time together. This guy should be out there on whether it's ESPN, CBS radio, or on the golf channel, out there on the golf course and sharing his knowledge and broadcasting being an on-course commentator because the things that he brings in and the, and the way that he does it, his style is just fantastic. He makes the game more fun by being a part of it. And that's what we need more of on, on TV, on radio, like he's got his own show or his co-show. Uh, co-host of the show uh, with Anita Marks, but the style and the fun that John brings, no wonder kids go there. No wonder he's one of the top U.S. kids teachers because he makes the game fun. He makes the game fun for them, but he makes the game fun for all of us. So that is something that I would love for. I hope someone on the Golf Channel is listening. I hope someone on CBS is listening. You need this guy as a part of your broadcasting uh, team because he's going to bring more listeners. He's going to bring more eyes. He's going to bring more clicks to everything he does. And uh, it's a, it's an honor and privilege having us part of the show. And like I say, hopefully we get that privilege again a little bit later on this summer. Okay, my next guest in a very odd position in the lineup tonight is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. Before I get to TP, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number two. UNDR.com. Two under performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean too, so spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit scony.com and use code NXT on T20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's scony.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. 
All right. Now back and next on the tee with me is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. As you know by now, if you want to play your best golf this season, you need to go down to club champion in Naples, Florida and spend some time with Tom. But and if you can't get down there and, and do what he's forcing me to do, and that is download the V1 video app and send him videos of your golf swing through that app. You can find Tom online at his website, TomPatry.com. And on Instagram at Tom Patrick Golf. Be sure to subscribe to his YouTube channel. We talk about this every time he comes on. 300 free video playing lessons. I take my cell phone with my ear pods with me to the range so I can watch and practice all the tips that Tom is sharing. And as always, huge privilege having him back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, TP, how are you? Grissy boy. <laughs> TP, how are you? I'm doing just fine, Chris. I'm uh, doing a little R&R down here in uh, Key West, Florida for about a week, recharging my batteries because of the jinx you put on me. Um, <laughs> you, put the Itali- you put the Italian horns on me, and you passed along what? Your, your, your gift of love in, in the form of a medical issue, and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Do you want to share? Chrissy, what did you have about, uh, how many weeks ago was it? How many weeks since you've uh, had your little episode? I don't know, three, four weeks. I had a kidney yeah, stone. A kidney stone. And, and I and, was kind enough on almost a everyday basis to call and check on you. You Because were. I love you and care about you. Yes. And what did you do? I you did put the, the same. Hex, you put the hex on me. And I, but I called you to check on you every day. So here I, I, I returned am. the favor. I had a I had a big event coming up. I was preparing for it. I was working for it, practicing my ass off. I go and play a practice round for it. Night before, I go back to where I'm staying, clean my clubs, and at four o'clock in the morning, I'm in the hospital, and I think my appendix are bursting. But no, I have the curse of mascaro. <laughs> it's not my appendix at all. It's the curse of mascaro. And the doctor walks in. I say, I got some good news and I got some bad news. So, okay, give me the good news first. You don't have appendicitis. Says, Doc, that's great. He goes, but you have the curse of mascara. <laughs> the you doctor said that? Yeah, he said that. He knew. He knew. He knew. <laughs> You've got a kidney stone. I said, that son of a bitch. He <laughs> followed me. He's, he jinxed me. He put the hex on me. I thought we were friends, my man. I thought we were friends. I, I'm trying to not. share. I'm sharing. Yeah. I'm sharing my experiences yeah. with you. I feel like yeah. you should know what that's like. Yeah. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about golf, and we haven't, uh, at least on the show, talked about Brooks Kepka's win at the PGA Championship. Uh, tell me about what you saw last week, not only from Brooks, but there were a lot of other really big characters that uh, that really put uh, that tournament uh, front and center. Uh, listen, you, you you can't take anything away from Kepka and majors, can you, Chris? I mean, the last five or six years of tournament golf and, and major championships. I mean, the guy just shows up almost every single time. Uh, if not for a little bit of a bad hiccup the last week in April, he would have two majors in his pocket this year, not just one, um, but played a hell of a final round. Uh, he played four solid rounds. Let's face it. He was good from Thursday to Sunday. Um, it was funny. We're wa- I was watching the broadcast with one of my college players on Saturday. And halfway through Saturday's broadcast, I said, Kepka's going to win this golf tournament. And he looked at me and said, well, there's so many guys close. How can you say that? I'm just telling you, Kepka's going to win this golf tournament. And, and obviously, he played an incredible round on, on Sunday, solid, solid as a rock all the way through. And, 
although a couple of guys made some nice runs and, and played some good golf, Scheffler and, and Hovland, for example, it, it just, he just was never not in control of the situation. He just, he's, he's, he's primed for major championships. You can't take that away from him at all. It, it's interesting to me, Tom, and it, I, I joke with, with other people about Brooks Kepka. He's, he's sort of like the early, early days Chris Carter as a wide receiver. All he does is catch touchdowns. Brooks Kepka, all he does is win major tournaments, nine wins. Five of them are majors. Right. That that mindset that, you know, every other tournament is a, a glorified practice round for Brooks as he's getting ready for another major championship. It, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, you know, Jack, uh, you know, he cared about winning majors more than anything else. And, and I know that that's what everybody's trying to elevate their game, trying to peak at the time of a major. But this guy just has some uncanny ability to raise the level of his game. Now, we thought it was gone when he went over to live and all of that sort of thing. He thought it was gone. We saw, you know, on the Netflix special and all that sort of stuff. But he's he's healthy now. He came close at the Masters. He's got to be the favorite going into the U.S. Open. But his ability to rise to the occasion from out of nowhere when really not winning anything else is amazing to me. Yeah, it's it's more amazing to me that, you know, he, he plays so well in majors and and, you know, obviously now with Liv, we don't see him very much anymore. But when he was still playing the PGA Tour, he, he really literally didn't care about the golf terms he played in. You know, he just, uh, he was very, very mediocre at best, really, uh, in, in non-major events. And he'd be going along thinking he didn't have a game, he didn't have a game. And all of a sudden, you know, it'd be U.S. Open week or it'd be PGA Championship week and click, he'd be there. Um, it, it's, 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 it's not, it's, it's almost hard to explain. But uh, you're right. He just he, he say so he just flips the switch to our major weeks, and and all of a sudden he's Jack Nicklaus. Right, so, incredible. The other guy that really put on a show for all of us and and almost stole the spotlight that week was Michael Block, and and the things that he did for the game of golf, the things that he did for his peers like yourself, the other twenty nine thousand PGA of America members, was unbelievable. Um, talk about what you saw from him. Yeah, and I don't as a as a East Coast guy, and Michael's a left coast guy. You know, we don't I don't know him at all, but I, and I watched closely as a PGA member, and was so impressed with not only his quality of golf, which was outstanding, obviously, really outstanding, but but just his demeanor and how relaxed he was, and and how he conducted himself. It's really hard. People don't understand how much more difficult it is to play in a major championship in those conditions uh, when. Although you compete as a PGA professional in your section locally, uh, you know the difficulty of the golf course, the the enormity of the of the stage you're on, um, and who you're playing alongside of. Uh, you're not you're not playing alongside of your neighbor from next door as another club pro. You're you're playing alongside Rory McIlroy. I mean, uh, or Brooks Kepka or who or whomever. Um, to do what he did and step up that week and play the kind of golf he played for four straight days, and and do it in a and I, I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, in kind of a laissez-faire way, with just kind of a relaxed attitude, which really was really spectacular. Uh, so, he, you know, he did us all proud. He did himself proud. He certainly did his home, his hometown and his home club proud. Um, hats off to him. Something that you mentioned, and we've talked about this a little bit on the show in the past, but the difference in, in levels of golf. I mean, there's there's playing golf. There's playing tournament golf whether that's you know member guest or a member member or our club championship 
Then there's playing PGA Tour golf, whether it's Corn Ferry, PGA Tour Championship, whatever, playing tour golf. And then there's playing major championship golf. Talk about the differences as you kind of climb that ladder. You, know, you really can't explain this to the recreational player. Um, you know, he gets nervous on the first tee on Saturday morning when there's a couple of people behind the tee watching too often. And then he gets even more nervous maybe when he's playing his club championship on the first tee on Saturday morning. Um, to get on the first tee of a, of, a, of a tour event, I remember playing my first international event. I played in the South African Masters in 84. And uh, which is which is a major event in that in that country, you know, galleries and TV and the whole bit. Um, it's hard to explain to Joe recreational player how that feels. It, 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 it's you have trouble breathing. Uh, your hands are doing things that you didn't ask them to do. Uh, it, it's <laughs> a, it, it's a certain it's certainly different. Um, and these guys who are the thoroughbreds of professional golf do it every single week. Uh, on a regular basis on, on primetime airwaves in front of the whole world. And then you'd ratchet up another notch, like you'd say, Chris, at a major, whether it's the Masters, the U.S. Open, or the, or the Open Championship, or the PGA. Um, and they perform so beautifully in incredibly difficult conditions. You can't explain to people how good these guys are. And, and certainly, you know, Tita Green is difficult, but the putting complexity uh, and the speed of these greens and the firmness of these greens and how many putts they hold. That putt Michael Bach made on the 72nd hole, which was uh, a putt he probably didn't, hopefully, hopefully didn't realize at the time, got him into next year's PGA and also was probably a $75,000 or $80,000 putt. And he rolled it right in the middle on a very crispy, very fast green on, on Sunday afternoon was nothing short of incredible. It's but the putting and the, and the touch and feel is just is not to be believed. Tom, speaking of Brooks Kepka and, and Live Golf, we we saw how cordial the players were to each other from both tours <laughs> leading up to Masters Week, and and it seems like the animosity at that point between players had subsided. Do you think the issue out there, the the sort of contention between Live and the PGA Tour, is it? Is it truly between the tours and the guys le leading both of those tours? Is it more personal between players? It has nothing to do with which tour you play on. Where do you think that friction is? I, I think that I think that if you if you polled guys in the PGA Tour, with the exception of a couple of characters, um, they respect that. Listen, you, you have a choice to make, and you make a choice, and you do it for a variety of reasons. Whether it's a money grab or whether it's security for your family. How, whatever reason you do it for, I think the majority of guys respect other guys' decisions to do what they want to do. I think the animosity is on some levels with certain guys somewhat personal. And I think really it points to really, for me, three characters. It points to Patrick Reed and, and suing the tour and suing individuals, which is preposterous. It points to Phil Mickelson being the smartest guy in the room at all times. And it points to Greg Norman, who is uh, either loved or hated, uh, depending on what camp you are. Or, and But I think the camp of hated is much more populous than the other one. And I think those three, if you remove those three characters and some of their actions, we wouldn't have any animosity at all. So let's take that a step further. If there, if Greg Norman wasn't 
the CEO of Live Golf. Let's pick somebody else. You know, Tom Watson is is somehow the CEO of Live Golf. Are are we at where we are today, or is are our things altogether different? I think they're very different, Chris. I think if it was, you know, you said Tom Watson, maybe he, if I just pulled the name out of my hat, like Luke Donald or somebody like that, who was more respectful, uh, much more alike. Uh, and beloved in some cases, especially in the case of Watson, I think that you could have, uh, you could have at some juncture already probably sat down at the table with both tours and figured some things out. Um, I think the actions of Greg, uh, and the way he's handled things in a, in a very, very curt manner. And like I said, Phil and Pat, you throw Phil and Patrick in there throwing gas on the fire. Um, has made has made the situation much more difficult than it needed to be. Is this some hangover from what Greg was trying to do back in the nineties, trying to get a, a world golf tour together? And and I know Jack and Arnold, particularly Arnold, threw a lot of water on that fire and told it told everybody, we're not doing this. Let's just move on. This isn't even a topic. Is I this hangover so. from that? I don't think it's hangover. I think it's I think it's vindictive is what it is. I don't know about a hangover. I think it's very vindictive. And I think Greg has a personal agenda uh, that his ego is driven, and uh, and it's it's he's made it very ugly, and he, and he's really I think in a very very sad way kind of damaged the game and damaged a lot of the uh, what could have been you know maybe a really really unique partnership if it had been handled differently um, than than it has been. Tom, some people are pointing fingers at CBS their coverage, some even at Jim Nance in particular, about not featuring Phil Moore at the Masters when he shot 65 in the final round to, to get himself into a tie for second place, or not being as enthusiastic maybe when Brooks won this past week at the PGA Championship. Do you think there's anything to that, that they are trying, consciously trying, not to be as enthusiastic about the live players as they would be you know, for somebody else if, if somebody else had won the PGA would it have been different, their coverage at all, do you think? No, I don't think so, because I think that, uh, I, you know, I watched the Sunday broadcast from Oak Hill, and I, I thought Brooks got more than his fair share of accolades coming down the stretch. I mean, uh, I don't think, I didn't feel like he was slighted or or pushed aside or, or downplayed in any way, shape, or form. Still at the Masters on Sunday, I don't really remember the broadcast that well. Um I remember seeing him hit a lot of shots. Um, I, you know, I, I don't even know how to comment on that. I mean, I don't, I don't think CBS is out to get Phil Mickelson or get Brooks Kepper or listen. It's very, very clear that their their allegiances with the PGA Tour. That's where their contract is, um, and, and that's how they get their bills paid. But I, I didn't think either broadcast slided those players particularly. This past weekend, Liv had a golf tournament up in D.C., won by Harold Varner. And I saw a video posted by Erica Larkin showing Varner's swing. His setup, movement through the ball is is very unique, particularly with the driver in his hand, which continues to prove that there's a lot of ways to get this thing done. But I wanted to get your thoughts on what you saw from Harold Varner's swing. Yeah, actually, I saw the same video, and I actually copied it and, and, and posted something on my Instagram page about it today that it wasn't my favorite action in the whole world. But, you know, I don't have very many favorite actions, Christian. 
Harold Varner winning this week on live. I, other than that one swing, I didn't see him play the round of golf um, uh, for, you know, for no un, un, unknown reasons. I don't watch live golf. Um, but Har- Harold has a unique action. And I think Harold proved with his win on live in that outing he played, that 54-hole no-cut outing he played in, that uh, there's a lot of different ways to get it done. And I think and if you look at the PGA Tour every single week, and if you and I walk down the range at Memorial this week, and you asked me to pick out three or four golf swings that I thought were really, really classically perfect, I don't think I could get to four. Um, and I think the average recreational player is out there trying to chase the perfect golf swing. And I think people like Harold Varner and, uh, you know, Ian Poulter, for example, and, and I'm just thinking about golf swings off the top of my head that are a little bit unique. Freddie Couples, um, who's a dear friend, and, and I can go on and on, have very unique actions that aren't really classic, and they play spectacular golf, world-class golf. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of ways to get it done. I think when the average player comes to me and says, I <laughs> I want to swing like Fred Couples or I want to swing like, you know, uh, you know, Adam Scott or, or Rory McIlroy. And I kind of look at him and I go, well, I, I don't think I can help you with that uh, because that's not who you are. You're not built that way. Your body doesn't move that way. You don't have that flexibility. You don't have that, 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 that structural movement. Um, I think that to understand you have to play golf how you best play golf for you. And what I try to do in amateurs uh, like if Chris Mascaro came to me, I'd watch Chris Mascaro swing a golf swing and try to figure out how, 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 to, how to use Chris's swing most effectively for Chris. And would I change things? Yeah, there'd probably be some things that I'd ask him to change or try to work on. But at, at, at 58 years old, you're not going to change the spots on the leopard a whole lot. So you have to kind of get them to play their own best golf. And, and that's what I try to do with everybody that comes to me. You mentioned perfect swing. Is there a perfect swing? Does that exist? Never saw one, Chris. Never seen, and I don't think I ever, ever will. I mean, if you ask me to pick out the closest to perfect right now, um, you'd have to point to somebody like Rory or, or Adam Scott. Um, both have beautiful golf motions. But if you notice, Rory and Adam Scott don't win every week. Um, and I think what the amateur misses, and, and you're going you're gonna to laugh at me, but there's this thing called short game that makes up <laughs> makes up for a lot of ills. And if you if you if you follow the round of golf on the PGA Tour and you pick out any group on the PGA Tour next week, just pick out three names that are paired together and watch them play, you'd realize as you follow them around, you know, best players in the world now, I don't care what group you pick, they hit a fair amount of really crappy golf shots during the round of the round of golf. Yet shoot some kind of a score under 70. Well, how does that happen? Well, they manage their misses beautifully, and they know how to score on and around the greens and turn five into four. Uh, Bobby Jones once said the secret of golf is turning three into two, meaning from greenside, instead of pitching it on the green and two-putting, pitching it on the green or hitting a bunker shot to a close-up proximity to one putt. So I don't think the average recreational player spends enough time understanding that or trying to attack that part of the game to save themselves shots. Let's take that a step further, right? Because we don't practice putting like we probably should. We don't, we talk, you talk all the time, short game, short game, short game. Are we practicing wrong 
I mean, I feel like we're we're a generation now where chicks dig the long ball, right? We want to hit we want to hit a three hundred and fifty yard drive. We want to swing out of our shoes. We're practicing all of those sorts of things, but where we lose strokes. And I was just talking to a buddy of mine earlier today. He's like, I'm three putting my way around the golf course. Well, how how often you know are you out there on the practice putting range, you know, hitting putts? Well, you know, I throw a few balls down before I go play. Yeah, that's nice, right? But if you're three putting your way around the golf course, hey, you 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 got 54 strokes right there, right. right? I mean, you're killing yourself by not practicing that. Or do we practice wrong? You know, you know, you know, Chris. I wrote a book back in the '90s called "The Six Spoke Approach," and one of the six spokes is time management and how we use our time. As a working guy, you're a working guy, and I, and I'm a working guy. When I do get time, I always work, spend the most time on the areas of my game that will impact my bottom line the fastest. And at 64 years old, I'm not going to hit it 320. It does, it's not going to happen. And by the way, in my prime, I didn't hit it 320. So and some, some people are blessed with what I call natural speed, and some people are not. Um, I had this conversation back in the... In the uh, Middle to late nineties with a guy named Tom Kite. You might remember that name. He was he was good enough player to win a U.S. Open, and and Tom made a comment to me. He said when he came out of, out of school, same year as Crenshaw, and he looked around, he realized that he was not ever get, ever going to be blessed with the gift of speed. He looked around in a, in a generation that had Freddie Couples playing alongside of him and Greg Norman playing alongside of him, and Tom Weisskopf playing alongside him, and guys that hit Nichols playing alongside him, and Watson guys that hit much further than he did. He said, I've got to, if I'm going to stay out here and not be folding shirts in a pro shop, I've got to tailor my game to ways I can compete. And he became, he made himself one of the great wedge players of that generation and, and a more than adequate putter and, and had a hell of a career, had a hell of a career. So I think when the recreational player examines how to play the game, and, and I've heard you talk to other guests about this, are you playing from the right teams? Okay. And are you attacking the game based on your physical capabilities as best you can? Tom, as we look ahead to this week's tour event, um, they're up at Jack's Place at Muirfield Village for the memorial. I know a place that you've gone out and seen a, a handful of times. What can we look forward to seeing at Muirfield Village? Well, that's, you know, Jack, Jack, um, Jack's built a hell of a facility there. That, that golf course is, um, and I'm not a, a huge fan of Jack's architecture overall, but that is a real, real jewel, that place. Uh, and it's only got 18 great holes. That's all. Um, there's no let up from, from first hit 18 green there. There's not a weak hole in that golf course. Uh, you've got to, you, you can't fake it around that golf course. You cannot fake it at all. You've got to drive the ball in the fairway. The, the rough is punishing. You've got to drive it in the right part of the fairway because angles are very, very important. Uh, and you've got to get it into a quadrant on the green. Um, it's a really, really strategic golf course that that is that is, has got plenty of length and very complex putting surfaces. So you, you got to look for a ball striker there. You got to look for somebody who's got command of his golf ball, who drives the ball reasonably well, not necessarily long, drives the ball in play, adequately long, but not not super long, drives the ball in play, and then is, is a fairly good iron player and certainly has has some degree of putting skill. It's a major championship type golf course. So you're not going to see, you know, somebody slap it around out there and win that golf tournament. When you think about the great tournaments, 
when I think we have four major championships all year long. But to me, the next, you know, we talk about elevated events now. There's elevated events and this, you know, prize money and all that sort of stuff. To me, there are two elevated events on the PGA Tour that should be every single year. And it's the Memorial and it's Bay Hill. Out of respect for Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer, those two should be elevated events forever. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I love the fact, Chris, that you even said what you just said. I mean, you got to respect people who have changed the course of history in golf. And certainly Arnold did. Undeniably, Arnold did in the early 60s. He brought golf to a black and white TV screen like it had never been brought before and brought the Army with him. And then along came Fat Jack, the young kid from Ohio who challenged the king. And now he had, a, he had competition, he had a rivalry, and, and, and people bought into it, and they, they embraced it. And, you, and, you, and it was a love-hate relationship for a long time, and they ultimately became great friends. But they, they changed the course of golf history uh, as, as media became part of golf, as TV became part of golf. Um, so to honor them and, and put them on a pedestal, I certainly think is deserving, as we put Bobby Jones on a pedestal at Augusta. Um, and in a, in, in a kind of a roundabout way, historically put old Tom Morris on a pedestal at the, at the Open Championship. I'm a big history guy, Chris, as you know. It's very important to me. Uh, if you walk in the front door of my house and turn left into my office, in my home office, there are 2,500 volumes of golf books from 1888 to present on those shelves. Um, and mo- most of them are instructionally based, but a good portion of them are historically based. And it's something I spent my, my life reading and studying. Um, it's very important to me. So putting those kind of people on a pedestal is something I hope that, uh, you know, big money dollars and big sponsorships doesn't, you know, push them, those names aside uh, and make it a corporate event. I think that Arnold should always be honored, always be honored and attached to Bay Hill. And I hope Bay Hill never changes in that respect. And certainly in the Memorial Tournament, and Jack's legacy should hopefully will live on forever at the at, at Muirfield Village. Tom, just a couple more before I let you go. And going back to the PGA Championship at Oak Hill, did Oak Hill show us what should be for a golf course for layout? And we've talked about golf balls, we've talked about rolling it back, and all that sort of stuff. If you if you look at what Oak Hill did, narrow fairways, penalizing rough, you know. To me, that showed what what the game could be without having to change anything. Is golf course design and what we saw at Oak Hill something that everybody, you know, that's putting on a PGA Tour event, we want to really look at how to make a golf course difficult for these guys. Let's not talk equipment. Let's talk about how Oak Hill got it done. Yeah, you and I, you know, I've had this, uh, uh, we've had this discussion before both on and off the air, Chris. And, and, and quite frankly, I'm going to call you out, Kyle. You, you, you disagree with me. You, you told me yep. the ball had to be rolled back. But I, listen, I think for major championship golf, okay, the ball does not have to change. The golf course setup should dictate how, how the game gets played and, and how people score. But the other side of that is Joe Public likes to see action, likes to see eagles and birdies. So I think there's got to be a balance on tour during the course of the year between, you know, the Muirfield Villages of the world, the Bay Hills of the world, the Oak Hills of the world, uh, the major championship venues of the world, and 
at places like Phoenix where, you know, you got holes coming down the stretch that are drivable par fours and, and, you know, guys can hit short irons to a par three and there's water lurking and, and, but it's exciting because there's birdie and eagle is a possibility, but also tragedy is a possibility. Um, so I think you have to balance those things in, in terms of the course of the year to keep the public interested. Um, I don't think rolling back the golf ball is the answer. I think you can do it with the golf golf. golf. One more, and, I, and you mentioned tragedy can happen, and we saw it happen from the fairway bunker on 16 to both Victor Hovland on Sunday and Corey Connors on Saturday. Both guys drove it into that bunker and then, I don't know, sculled it, hit it thin into the face of the bunker. Surprising to me to see Two guys like that and back-to-back days hit shots like that from the fairway bunker. Is that shot more difficult than what it looks like? What were your thoughts when you saw both of those shots? I think they needed oxygen. You're on the 16th hole of a major championship, uh, third round and fourth round, and you're in a fairway bunker where the margin for error now for hitting a clean shot and elevating the golf ball is taken to a little bit different level. Um, that's that's a golf shot where if you if you just you just punch a fraction and catch it one groove, one groove thin. Um, and you're trying to do something, maybe bite off a little bit more than you can chew. You can get that can happen to you. I thought that fairway bunker on 16 was pretty penal in terms of its depth. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes you got to take a little bit more aloft and, and maybe put that ball just in front of the green and try to make four a different way. Um, than, than they did. Um, I'll bet you if you saw that on, on super slow-mo and you could watch the contact with the face of the club, you would think the contact was – it'd be hard to detect that the contact was off at all. Um, but one groove low on a, in a fairway bunker like that and, and you're, you're going to eat your lunch. You know, it's, those margins, Chris, I can't, I can't tell you guys watching that are amateurs how, how tight those margins are. I bet you, I bet you they didn't miss those golf, golf shots by very, very much at all. You know, on TrackMan, you know, and I use TrackMan sparingly, but on TrackMan, there's a there's a there's a one there's a screen I can go to that measures where the ball was struck on the face. It has a it has a, a graphic of the face of the club, and it shows you the exact location of each shot and where it was hit on the face. And at the bottom of that graphic, it tells me both from top to bottom and from left to right how many millimeters off the center of the contact millimeter. Wow. And 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 you'll, you'll, somebody will hit a shot and they say, really, that felt really, really thin or that felt really, really fat or that felt really toe or really heel. And I'll show them at the bottom of the screen that they were three millimeters off center to the right or to the left or up or down. And look at me like three millimeters. I have, that, that felt awful. And that's how small the sweet spot of a golf club is. And that's how hard it is to hit perfectly solid golf shots. And these guys we watch on TV, hit that exact contact point almost every single time. And that's how tight these margins are. And that's how talented these people are. Yeah, well, you take that a half step further. I've seen a lot of those guys talk about, you know, you you mentioned where on the face. I hit right. a groove too low. I hit right. a groove too high. I think and, people for... think, and people think they're exaggerating, Chris, but they're not exaggerating. That's, they really mean a groove too low. That's what they really mean. Yeah. To me, that's craziness. Yeah, one, yeah, one yeah. groove low or one groove high. We're happy if it. We're happy if we get it three millimeters from the center <laughs> club face. You kidding me? 
right. you're talking exactly. about how terrible a shot that is. That's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. Tom, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, my friend, whether it's following you on Instagram or on your website. Yeah, Instagram, you know, is is my is my landing spot most times, Chris. But we have two Facebook pages, a LinkedIn page. Uh, of course, the website is just tompatry.com. But more importantly, and I say this every time, what, what show is this, by the way, Chris, for us? What for show us, is it's this? milestone number 75 tonight. You have to you have to be in search of new talent, Chris, really. You're, you're really digging the bottom of the barrel <laughs> out here. The person we should really be thinking about and talking about is Chris Mascaro. I heard your last interview with John and, and praising him about how CBS should see, find him or the golf channel should find him. You are you are absolutely delusional. They should be finding Chris Mascaro. I'm waiting for the day when somebody finally wakes up at the Golf Channel or somebody finally wakes up at CBS Sports or or wherever, you know, wherever, and they discover Chris Mascaro and go, where, where the hell, what, what, why didn't we get this guy sooner? Because that's where you're supposed to be, pal. Oh, I appreciate that very much, DP. It means a great deal to me. I love you, my friend. I can't thank you enough for uh, coming back and being a part of the show again tonight and for the other 74 times. You make this show so much fun to do. I always look forward to spending time with you. I'm already looking forward to two weeks from tonight. Chris, thanks a lot for that kidney stone. I really appreciate it. <laughs> always here for you, my friend. Don't ever forget that. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. All right, Tom. Bye-bye. That is the great Tom Patry, my friends. And again, TomPatry.com is the website, at TomPatryGolf on Instagram. And like we say, every time he comes on the show, you got to go out there on his on his YouTube channel because he's got so much great content available for you there as well. He is just one of the great individuals you get to meet, not only in this game, but in this life. And uh, I'm very blessed that I get to say that he's a part of the show every other week. And I'm already looking forward to the next time. Before I close up shop tonight, I want to remind you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Power and Precision. Adele Golf's SMS and SMS Pro irons offer the ultimate in iron adjustability. Featuring the revolutionary swing match weighting technology, precisely dial in each iron to your swing by moving the heaviest weight to its optimal position for maximum performance. Learn more about them by going to adelgolf.com. And folks, do you sway and you're off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried squares? Try the new Speed Bolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z dot com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again go out to Billy Mayfair, John Mascari, and Tom Patry for joining me this week. Next week, like I say, I'm going to be heading over to Myrtle Beach for my annual golf trip with my buddies. This year, we're excited to be going to 
Caledonia Golf and Fish Club, and True Blue Golf Club. They are two of the top courses in Myrtle Beach. So many people have told me how great both courses are, so we're excited to go there and check them out for ourselves. When we get back in a couple of weeks, scheduled to join me then are Tom Patrick, right back in the leadoff spot. One of the great golf course designers of our time, Bill Bergen, will be here. One of the great instructors working with our disabled veterans, Joe Groman, will be back on the show. And then we're going to round it out with a return visit from the president of the Golf Heritage Society, Dr. Bern Bernacki. Folks, you can find this show available as a podcast just about everywhere you get your podcasting content. In particular, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Good Pods. And as always, thanks to them for making this show one of their recommended podcasts. Go out and download their free app and stream your favorite podcast from your favorite device. Most of all, my thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until two weeks from tonight, hit them straight, my friends.